So listen, I thought no better way to start a sermon to really grab your attention than to talk about chores. Sound good? All right. So part of being in any family is that you have chores that you do, right? So what I thought we'd do, we have Team Ranch Hand in the back in the back area over there. And you can tell them by the fact that they are more comfortable sitting on the ground than us city folk who sit on chairs. And they are going to verify these suggestions we get. But here's what I need. I need you to think of some of the chores that you can imagine would need to be done on a ranch. So raise your hand one at a time. Tegan, what's one? Cleaning horse poop. Is that true? Ding, ding, ding. We got one. All right. Uh, Noah, go. Feeding animals. Is that true? Yes. All right. Lauren, go. Getting eggs from the chicken. True? Ding, ding, ding. Go, Sadie. Feeding the horses. We got it. Jacob. Taking care of the goats. Is that true? All right. Haley. Washing horses. Is that true? All right. Way in the back. Giving the horses hay. Is that true? We've got, these are, so far we've got well-fed horses. We've got three of them mentioned. Brian, go. Sweating. Is that true? Daily. Turn. Doing the dishes. Does that sound familiar? No. All right. Uh, one more, Maddie. Grooming animal. Okay. Now, folks in the back, is that a pretty small list? Yeah, very small list. Now, I want you all to listen really close because what I want to hear is I want to hear from the back some of the toughest chores that they do. Like, what's some of the toughest things about working a ranch that clearly we don't think about because we haven't mentioned them yet um, that might go on? So tell me some of the toughest chores that are out there. Let's hear them. Fixing fences and rehanging gates. Fixing fences and rehanging gates. All right. in the morning. Wow. Wow. Explain foaling really quick. Okay, so there's babies being born. you got to be up all night with them, checking them. Okay. Just to get to them. Wow. Now we're talking. Okay. <laughs> that sounds fun. That does sound fun, actually. Evidently, the first night, some of our what? Water lines. That's got to be fun on 660 acres. Okay. So evidently the first night, some of our crew was here, and they thought that wood splitting was really cool. They were kind of playing with it, thinking that was a really fun thing. And someone made the comment, yeah, try doing that for like four hours straight out of necessity, because it's one of the things to be done, right, to check off. All of a sudden it becomes something a little bit tougher. Um, here's why I start with chores, is that being a part of a family means there are some things that you do that just have to get done. You don't do them because it entertains you. You don't do it because, you know, it's something particularly exciting to you or even because you're necessarily great at it. You do it because it has to get done. Someone's got to check on the cows. 
they're giving birth, right? Someone's got to deal with that leaky pipe way out there, and it's just got to get done. And in the Christian life, it's kind of similar to that. Uh, we're going to talk about something this morning that can be really cliche. It can be so common that we kind of tune out and think, well, we've heard that before. Uh, but we want to we look into it a little bit deeper this morning. It's this, to love your enemies. Now, as a part of Christ's family, we are called to love our enemies. And you might even kind of view it like a chore where you say, but I don't like loving my enemies. We know that. I'm not great at it. That's okay. You're still called to love your enemies because Jesus couldn't have been more clear about telling us to love our enemies. I want you to think for a moment. Um, some of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. He was a pastor uh, in Germany during Nazi Germany. And, um, and his story is pretty fascinating. But he was actually over here in America for a season. He chose to go back and, um, and basically suffer with Christians in Germany under Nazi rule. And he paid for it with his life. And as you can imagine, Nazis aren't very kind people. In fact, they're the enemies of the cross. And if you profess to be a Christian, you are under threat of your life. And if you profess to be a Christian pastor leading other Christians, you were a target, to be sure. And on April 9th of 1945, the SS guards came to his cell. And in an effort to humiliate him one last time, they made him remove his prison clothes. And then as he's walking from his prison cell to where he's going to be killed as a traitor of Germany, but as a faithful servant of the cross... They're jeering him and mocking him the whole way. And there's this German doctor that wrote down the experience, and, and it was found later, and here's what it says. It says, I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. He climbed the steps of the gallows, brave and composed. I have hardly seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. This from an SS doctor who saw a lot of death. There was a pastor years and years later that came along and he was actually inspired by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was fighting for racial equality by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King. And he said, I have a dream. Remember that? Well, the dream that he had was really born out of kind of a nightmare part in our country's history. And he had lots of enemies because he put himself out there and his very presence was convicting. It was a truth conviction for people who were living apart from God's will in terms of how they treated each other. And so he had lots and lots of enemies. Both Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King had the same boss. His name was Jesus. And Jesus said plainly, love your enemies. And not only did he say it, he lived it. Now, I want you to think about being a ranch hand for a second. Um, imagine that you wanted to be a ranch hand, but you came and, uh, and you said, you know, I require air conditioning when I ranch and when I full uh, calves or do things with fulling calves. And um, I'm really, really fond of pink lemonade. And I like it when it's like that moisture is running down the outside of the glass. And I've got to sip it through a straw because I don't like the lemonade mustache. That annoys me a little bit. Um, Tim, quick question for you. 
I show up first day and those are my, those are kind of my initial, that's your initial impression of me. What do you do with a guy like me? <laughs> Keep it real. We're in church. He, he, he's just stunned. He's in stunned silence. Gracious example. So, that was so, a true story. So if you're no, 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 I believe I actually believe Tim would, would handle it that way. Wouldn't you want someone to handle it that way if you were that clueless about what it meant to be a rancher, right? Now what's funny is if if I bump into Tim uh, and I just see him somewhere and I say, Tim, what do you do? And he's wearing a cowboy hat like that. And he says, Well, I'm a rancher. And I go, Okay. Uh, and I start to ask him some questions. He would begin to tell me some things that he does. Like, Tim, what would you do yesterday? Well, maybe yesterday is a bad example. He went to a wedding. But, Tim, what would you do two days ago? And he would tell me some things. And then I'd say, what would you do last week? He'd tell me. I'd say, how did the winter go? And he would tell me about the winter around here. And pretty soon I'd be able to assess, this guy's really a rancher. He's not just someone who says that he is. I want you to think about Christians for a moment. We have this brand of Christianity that's really popular in America right now that knows nothing of following Jesus Christ. In other words, you wear the label of Christian, but your idea of that is that you really enjoy air conditioning, you really enjoy lemonade with the ice, you know, kind of forming water on the outside of your glass and sipping it, and if it gets outside that realm too much, then then we're not too excited about it. If you think about Christianity, at, at its basic level, it's about following. Jesus said, follow me, and if you're not following Jesus, then you could call yourself a Christian or a rancher. You could dress like a Christian or a rancher. You could even read up on Wikipedia all about ranching. But if you're not actually doing it, if you're not living the lifestyle, the Bible knows nothing of that kind of Christianity as being really in the family of God. Jesus told us to be Christ-like. Now, I'd have a hunch that if if I asked you this this morning, how many of you want to be Christ-like? I would imagine that many, many people would say, that's me. I want to be Christ-like. And I think our brains would go this way. I think we'd start thinking about, I want to be loving. I want to be merciful. I want to exhibit peace and live peace and experience peace. I want my life to have purpose, and I want to walk in that purpose. And those are all Christ-like things, but I think our brains shut off this part of it. To be Christ-like is to look at Christ's life and to realize his reputation was in shambles. He was misunderstood by those closest to him. He served relentlessly. He sacrificed relentlessly. He was killed by his enemy. And to be Christ-like is to be loving and merciful and peaceful and purposeful and all these other things that Christ lived and said, follow me. In fact, he actually said, take up your cross and follow me is how we're instructed to do it. So Jesus didn't just forgive or love his enemies. We see this really poignant picture in the Gospel of John. Remember, he gets down and washes the disciples' feet. Well, one of those was his enemy. He washed Judas's feet. He served his enemy in that way. And that's what we're called to do as well. 
Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew 5, uh, and we're going to read from that. If you didn't bring a Bible, but you have a cat instead, that's okay. Um, just hang on to that cat. We're taking up an offering later. You can put the kitty in there. Kidding, please don't put the cat in the offering. Um, in, uh, in Matthew 5, this is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He preached lots of things, but this is probably one of his most famous sermons uh, that he ever preached. And even a lot of non-Christians know the idea of love your neighbor and love your enemy right from this passage. Matthew 5.43 says this. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here's just a couple of observations about loving your enemy from that passage. Number one is this, just experientially. Isn't it easier to talk about examples of loving your enemy than actually doing it? Like if you think about the abstract of it, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you think about Martin Luther King, and you think about other people in history, it's easier to talk about their example than to live it right now. But here's the reality. We can't obey God in the past. We can't obey God through older brothers and sisters in the faith. We are called in this generation right now today to carry on the lifestyle, to follow Jesus, to do the chores, as it were, of being in the family right here today. So rather than lean on other examples, we're to do it in our own life. Secondly, this assumes that loving your enemies will be hard and doesn't come naturally. We're taking a one-week break from this, but we've been in this series on fighting forest fires, handling these powerful emotions that threaten to like burn the whole place down. Anger and guilt and fear and doubt and the like. And what this passage is saying is just because you don't feel like doing it, still is not easy. It doesn't mean you shouldn't go and live this way. This passage also assumes that you will have enemies if you're a follower of Christ. Don't we sometimes get it in our head that, gee, I'm having enemies, I'm having resistance, I'm having all this pushback, maybe I'm doing something wrong? Maybe the fact of the matter is that that you're living the Christ-like life. Now, don't just go out and be a jerk to everyone, right? <laughs> There's ways to get enemies without being a Christian. Don't do that. That's just the flesh. But maybe your obedience on campus this year, maybe your obedience at the office, maybe your obedience in your own family is actually going to draw some real criticism. And it's going to be criticism that's going to push into something even weightier than that. Here's something interesting. Not only does it assume that we will have enemies... But Jesus is pretty blunt, and he calls them enemies. It's okay to say that we have enemies. We live in this really emotionally fragile age where we feel like we shouldn't talk this way. And yet Jesus said, not only should you assume you're going to have enemies, but you're supposed to love your enemies. He's labeled them your enemies. Probably talk long and hard on all kinds of things, but let me say lastly this, that your enemies probably won't recognize your acts or your attitude as loving at least right away 
You think about Jesus and the many encounters that he had with enemies. He, in hindsight, we can pull back and read the story and say, and that was the most gracious, loving, patient thing that you could ever do to that person. And yet so often the enemies responded poorly, right? And they attacked him even further. And then they'd start giving him slurs. You're a Samaritan and you have a devil. And eventually they killed him. Not because he was doing wrong to them, but because he was loving them and they didn't get it. I'm going to talk about a lot of different things this morning, all about loving your enemy. But if you don't catch anything else, I want you to catch this one nugget. Okay, Zoom in right here. Here it is. As a Christian, what if you woke up tomorrow morning and made this your prayer and said, God, I'm praying this as if it's already true. I'm praying this because you called me to this and you wouldn't give me a command that you wouldn't empower me to live out. Here it is. I will love and forgive my enemies. I will love and forgive my enemies because I was loved and forgiven while an enemy of you, God. So you just wake up and say, God, today I'm choosing to love and forgive my enemies because of the fact that you loved and forgave me while I was an enemy of you. Listen to Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Is that good news? Come on. And if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. That is great news. And that empowers us to live the life God's called us to. All right, really quickly, who's my enemy? How many are excited for snowboard season? I know of one at least. Boom, a lot of us, okay? If you go snowboarding or skiing, hard to think about when it's 100 degrees out, but it's coming. When you go snowboarding or skiing, there's a rating system on the hills, right? What does green circle mean? Easy. What is blue square? Kind of medium, right? They call it more difficult. Eh, it's medium. What is the black diamond? The fun one. The fun one. Amen. What is double black diamond? It's scary. It's scary. It's it's as oftentimes it says expert only underneath it. Now in following Christ, there's different parts to it, and this is one of the really steep, really scary parts of the hike. Jesus says, "Come on, follow me." And there's some parts you're bebopping along, and some parts that are downright steep, downright difficult. You don't think you can take another step, and it's scary to boot. Loving your enemies is kind of in that category. And what if we could think about people like ski slopes for a second? We'd be like, green circle, how are you doing? It's so easy to get along with you. And then you're going through your guest list for your wedding, and you're like, I am not inviting Black Diamond, and I'm certainly not inviting Uncle Double Black Diamond to our wedding. Right? Maybe the rest of the weekend we just call each other that. Let's just get it out there. Tommy, I was called a Black Diamond. But it's true. There are some people, it's just so easy to love them. It's so easy to forgive them. And there's other people, it's just downright hard. In fact, it actually seems possibly right now, the day where you're sitting, impossible to get there. So maybe when we think about enemies, we think, well, I'm not like David. I'm not hiding in a cave with someone chasing me for my life, like ready to kill me. So I guess I don't have any enemies. Let me broaden enemies for you just a little bit. Is there anyone that's against you that wants to see you fail? Is there anyone whose character or personality or condition 
just makes them kind of repulsive to you. You're like a magnet, and they're the other magnet, and they're kind of pushing away with them. They're a double black diamond. Maybe there's unreconciled friendship or family relationships that have gone cold. Maybe you're both giving each other the cold shoulder or the silent treatment. That's a double black diamond situation. Maybe there's someone who isn't against you, but you're against someone. You find yourself in your mind, I want them to fail. I'm against that person. When good things happen, I get deflated. That's a double black diamond personality. I'm going to give you a couple things from this passage about how do you respond to your enemies. Here's number one. Number one is that love, be like Jesus who loves. Love prays for their enemies. What if today you take the baby step of beginning to pray for your enemies? Now, here's how you're going to want to pray, all right? You're going to want to pray, God, would you please show this person how wrong they are? God, you've got fire of judgment. Would you use it? Right, I mean, you're going to... You're going to want to pray justice into their life. You're going to want to pray that they that God would discipline them so they'd see how right you are and how wrong they are. You know what that betrays? That betrays how shallow our love is. It actually shows us how small our trust in God is. And it kind of reveals kind of the nature of what's really going on. Here's my challenge to you. What if you took the Lord's Prayer... And you prayed the Lord's Prayer for your enemies. In other words, you took that person's name. And by the way, I've practiced this before. It's very challenging. Take that person's name and get their face in your mind and pray the Lord's Prayer for them. Pray that God would be revered by them. Pray that that this person would submit to his kingly rule. Pray that God would richly supply all that this person needs to fulfill what God would have him do for the kingdom work. Pray that he'd be forgiven. Pray that he would forgive. Pray that he'd be protected from the powers of the devil. Does this sound like we need God's Holy Spirit active in our lives to do something like this? Absolutely. Is this possible? Absolutely. So let that be kind of a little guiding path of how to pray for your enemy. And pray that sincerely over time. Number two is that love forgives. In Matthew 18, there's this interesting story where the disciples come and basically imagine there's some wine to their voice, you know. God, how many times do I have to forgive people when they wrong me? And I think they were stepping up to think that they were varsity saying seven times. That's pretty good, right? Seven times. That is the perfect number. Is that good? What's Jesus' response? Yeah, 70 times 7, actually. He actually tells them a little story in there. It's sometimes called the unmerciful servant. It's this guy who's forgiven this debt that he couldn't possibly repay in a couple of lifetimes. And as soon as he's forgiven it, he's actually caught going out and, and exacting justice on someone who owed him a minuscule debt. And Jesus says that when the master who initially forgave the first debt found out what this wicked servant had done, he said in his anger he went and had him uh, go to pay back his debt. And here's how Jesus concludes that story. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Oscar Wilde had this quote, Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them more. (laughs) 
Now, that's kind of clever, right? But doesn't that still serve the flesh? You're like, oh, I, if I can just get back, I guess I'll forgive I'll try that tactic. That's called passive-aggressive. <laughs> Therapists make a lot of money off people like that. God actually wants a total transformation of your heart such that you don't just say with words, I forgive you, but it's actually from the life. Parents, do we want our kids, when they have a wrong go on, do we want them just to parrot back some phrase? No, no, no. We want true forgiveness. We want reconciliation in our family. So does God. Jesus was constantly forgiving and constantly at odds with people. You know what this tells us? It means that even as you're loving your enemies, even as you're forgiving them perfectly, which Christ was, you won't be at peace with everyone. The Bible puts it really simply. Live at peace with everyone, so far as it depends on you. Lindsay. Lindsay can have a grudge against me that she just won't let go. Give it up, Lindsay. No, don't say sorry. Say no. I choose not to. I'm going to hang on this till I die. So if Lindsay's like that to me, and I try to make amends with Lindsay, and I pray about it, and I'm trying. There's a certain point at which I realize, you know what? I'm to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on me. And at some point, God may release you and say, you know what? Son, daughter, you've done, you've, you've done everything you possibly can. The ball is now in their court. Pray for them. Continue to love them. Continue to be there, ready to welcome them when they come back. But this is their grudge that they're holding right now. One more thing about forgiveness, by the way, is if you resist reconciliation, it's to the peril of your own soul. We're instructed in the Bible not to, not to come into a place of worship or go out to a place of worship, as the case may be, while holding a grudge that actually begins to build a little callous in our lives such that we can live a hypocritical lifestyle. Love prays. Love forgives. Thirdly, love greets. In Matthew 5, 47, our passage, it says, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Pagans aren't people who dance around in the woods against, you know, to some idol while fire is burning. They are people without God. Don't people without God even do that? Love prays, love greets, uh, love forgives, love greets. God knows the condition of your heart. And, and I wonder if sometimes we put some giant price tag or giant reward thing on some grand sacrifice we make to advance social justice or to do some great grand thing. And I wonder if God's looking at us saying, you know, the way that you interact and treat with, with your fellow human beings on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis reveals just, amount, just as much about the condition of your heart and your trust of me and, and your worship of me and your love for other people as it does all these great and grand and glorious things. So I'm not saying don't do great and grand and glorious things, but I'm saying do that and... Do the hard chore of just daily getting along with people. Daily keeping a short record of wrong. Daily not letting the sun go down on your anger. Next, love blesses. These are the words of Jesus. Listen, do good to those who hate you. Turn the other cheek. Give to whoever asks. Lend, expecting nothing in return. Do you see the progression here? We're to pray for our enemies. We're to forgive them. We're to go as far as greeting them. And now what? We're supposed to bless them. Do you see a growing fruit of the Spirit in the person's life that could, that, could, that could do this? 
The way you know that God has healed and empowered you is this. When you hear your former enemy's name, and what immediately jumps to your mind is how they're doing, their well-being, how their kids are, instead of all the things that they did to hurt you or wrong you. There's something called the grocery store test, right? Where you kind of walk around the corner. We actually chased a woman down at Trader Joe's the day before we came here. Actually, no, Friday, the, the, the day we got here. Now, she happened to be a dear friend from our Los Gatos Christian Church days. And we chased her down through Trader Joe's and we caught up with her. That's what you do to someone you love, right? You go, you want to catch up, you want to see how they're doing. But what if that had been a former enemy of mine and I saw them and I quickly pulled back like this? And the rest of my shopping trip was like covert, right? And I'm like sneaking around, whoop, whoop, you know, trying to not see them. You know what that means? It means God's got some work left on you on that person. <clears throat> Scripture shows us some different places where we're supposed to love when your life is threatened. Maybe you're not being persecuted or abused today, but there are some. Maybe you're being threatened. Maybe you're being cursed. Love when your life is threatened, but catch this. Love when your ego is threatened. When someone shuns that very greeting that you're trying to offer them. When you're made to feel small by other people. When you're uncomfortable around other people. Love when your ego is threatened. I want to close with a couple of thoughts about how to do this. You could call these maybe tips for how to love your enemy. Three, three things to remember. One is remember whose you are. Being God's child sets us free from anxiety. You know what a part of um, part of not loving and forgiving your enemy is this. Um, a part of a part of loving your enemies is this. It's that we're afraid that they won't get justice. We're anxious that they won't be made to say sorry or worse yet, pay for what they've done to us. What if I'm taken advantage of? What of the honor that I've lost? Our treasure and our honor and our value, catch this, aren't able to be stolen by our enemies. Isn't that good news? It's secure. It's there. So there's a certain resting that says, God, I am a child of the judge. So leave it in his hand. Number two is remember what's coming. Remember whose you are, but also look forward. Remember what's coming. Great reward. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now look forward to your earthly reward. Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because catch this, Great is your reward in heaven. Number three is remember what you've received. You received mercy from God. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Philippians 3.17 says this. Join with others. Look around you for a moment. Join with others in following my example, brothers. And take note of those who live according twice. 
according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, catch this, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Christian, rather you should, Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. This includes even your enemies. Van, why don't you come on up? I gave a couple of stories at the beginning that are just some kind of historical examples of loving your enemies. Um, one of the things I challenge you to do, some of you know this, some of you are maybe new enough that you don't know this, but we are a so- small little part of something called Hitland Ministries, hitland.net. You can read all about it. It's a ministry by a guy who runs a full-time dental practice and somehow runs a full-time ministry to San Quentin Prison. Juvenile Hall, uh, most of the places that people tend to try to avoid. He brings the gospel into these places. Once in a while, I have lunch with Dr. Brad. And I just had lunch with Dr. Brad a few days ago before we came here. And by the way, his gear is stored in our back lot where we kind of park back in the dirt. All those trailers on the right-hand side, they look like they just sit here. He comes in quiet as a mouse often, and he just grabs those trailers, and those are floats. Those are sound equipment. Those are all gear for bringing these things in. Once in a great while, I grab lunch with Dr. Brad. I say, Brad, I just want to hear what's going on in the ministry. How can we be praying for you? And every single time, I walk away thoroughly encouraged. This last time, I asked Brad, how's it going? He said, well, you you know what's going on with San Quentin, don't you? I'm like, well, who doesn't? No, I don't know. (laughs) I, I don't get the San Quentin times. What's going on? Here's what he said. For 12 years, that has been my congregation. He said, Dave, it's unique to almost anyone else, but I can go walk the yard. He's a big, bearded, white man walking the yard at San Quentin, a doctor. And the guards know him and think he's cool. The prisoners know him and think he's cool. So he's fine to go walk the yard at San Quentin. Why? Because he pastors there. He preaches and he pours his life in. He's been bringing the gospel for 12 years. Well, they just got a new chaplain recently. And this chaplain... Uh, basically put the gate down and didn't like Brad's message and didn't like how he was doing it. So after 12 years of ministry, shut the door to further ministry at San Quentin. So I'm hearing this story and I go, well, that's, that's a prayer request right there. But then he goes on with his story. He says this. So the door shut at San Quentin, which takes up a lot of my time. So I just prayed, God, well, what else do you have then? And in light of the shutting down at San Quentin, this whole new field of ministry opened up. And one of them was this. He hangs out and deals with a bunch of rappers. Most of them are former gangbangers. And they all have rap names, which kind of has inspired me to, to develop one. So I'm doing a contest next fall about that. But, but when you talk to Dr. Brad, it's the funniest thing. is He'll be like, so I was talking to my buddy Wordsmith. So Wordsmith had this idea that we should just bring the gospel on floats like a parade in some smaller towns. What do you think? 
And so he's like, well, I talked to Fuego and Seven, and they thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and, so, and so we started doing this. So recently, this last summer, 4th of July, he goes to Fairfield, kind of East Bay, and he's got this float, and they all are wearing these shirts, black shirts that say, Dope Dealer. And then the D is crossed out, and there's a big red H. And they're the Hope Dealers. And they go floating along down the streets of Fairfield with their mics in hand, and they're tatted up all over the place. And they basically walk down, and there's tons of people on the parade route, and they go, glad you asked. We're here because we love Jesus. And they just start doing their thing. Well, they're lined up for this, for this parade. And Brad said I allowed, you know, like two and a half hours to get to Fairfield, even though it should take about an hour and 10 minutes, hour and 15 minutes. I just thought traffic and whatnot, I better be there early. He said it took me three hours and 20 minutes to leave my house and get to Fairfield. Then as I'm driving, he said, I had this weird condition that feels like someone took razor blades and cut them across my eyeballs. And I'm literally like weeping, like my eyes are in pain. And I'm supposed to drive the float with thousands of people on either side with my eyes barely visible. He said, we get there and we get all set up for the 4th of July parade. And we're kind of, there's a few minutes before the parade's supposed to start. And he said, I look back, two floats behind us, and here's about 50 people on this float. And they're all holding signs that say this. Victims of violent crime. And he goes, I saw that. I thought, well, that's a downer. We're the hope dealers. We're, we're trying to bring a good message here. And we've got the victims of violent crime. What's that all about? And he said, my, my, 20, my, my team of 25, mostly, mostly confirmed bloods and crypts that have been saved out of that lifestyle, came walking back to the float and they said, hey, what are you guys all about? And they said, well, we're, we're the victims of violent crime. And they said, who are you guys? And Wordsmith, I believe, was the guy that spoke up. He said this, we're the ones who committed those violent crimes. And Brad said there was this pregnant pause, just like that. It just hung in the air. And he said this, we're here today to say we're sorry. We're here to say, would you please forgive us? We represent the very people that killed your loved ones, that maimed you, that scarred you emotionally, that give you nightmares. And then they proceeded to say, but because of the love of Jesus, we're utterly transformed now. And there was this powerful moment that went on. And as Brad's talking, I'm sitting there just choking back tears. And by the way, he went on to tell me about five more stories about his summer, just like that. Modern modern day examples of what should be people hating each other with an impenetrable barrier between them broken down because of the gospel. Friends, it's real. We're to live the life of power that Jesus has called us to. Pray with me. God, just right now, sitting under some shade with a cool breeze, with beauty all around us, with friends all around us, we submit our lives to you. We ask you to do a work in us. We ask that, God, we would do more than sing or talk or wear a label or dress like a follower of Christ, but then we would just take step after step after step and follow you into the great unknown.
I thank you, God, for stories of success that you have in this very place of reconciliation that's gone on. Today, God, there's more hurt. There's more reconciliation that needs to go on. Would you come in and break through that? Help us to trust you enough to walk in those things. In Jesus' name.